Welcome back to RD Audio. I'm Steve Joy, the Head of Researcher Development, and I'm delighted to introduce our latest podcast where I talk to Liz Simmons about research culture at the University of Cambridge. So Liz wears two hats. With one, she's the Assistant Head for Strategy at the Postdoc Academy, and prior to that, she worked for many years as a Postdoc Careers Advisor for postdocs in physical sciences and technology. So she certainly knows a thing or two about researcher development and supporting the uh, professional and career aspirations of early career researchers. But her second hat is that she's the institutional lead for the research culture recovery plan. I won't get into all the details about this in terms of how that fits with the wider recovery agenda in the university. The key thing is Liz is tasked with figuring out how we improve the research culture of the university and in particular how we implement our institutional action plan which was published at the start of this year. So this conversation is about what research culture is, what it means to you as an early career researcher and if you're interested how you can find out more and get further involved. So I hope you enjoy it. Liz thanks very much for being here this afternoon. I wanted to jump straight in with a big question. What do we actually mean when we talk about research culture? Great. So um, when we're talking about research culture, we're talking about the environment in which research happens. So we are describing people's attitudes, people's behaviours, people's expectations, or in practical terms, what we're talking about is, for example, how do we recognise and reward people? How do we uh, manage people? What kind of leadership do we provide? How do we look after people really to make sure that they can do their best work. I guess I'm interested as well in the fact that this appears to be a phrase that's really taken hold in certainly in the last few months, I guess in the last few years. Why do you think research culture has become such a hot topic now in, in 2021? It's certainly the buzzword at the moment. So uh, it's interesting because the problems that we know about in research culture and uh, if I was to summarize some of the key problems, it would be things like um, hyper competition, precarity of career structure, um, bullying and harassment, lack of good leadership and management. Those kind of key themes are things that I think we've known about in the sector for a long time. But it's only really in the last probably two to three years that we've started to gather some hard evidence. There's been a number of um, studies conducted, for example, by the Wellcome Trust, who did a very high profile uh, project on reimagining research, uh, um, which actually gives some data to back up what we've known about for a long time. I'd say um, what strikes me as well about research culture is that for a long time, people have been really willing to put up with the negative aspects of research culture in order to pursue a career in academia. And I think that alongside the fact that it's a really complicated problem. So if you try and tackle one part of the system, you know, it's interrelated with several other parts of the system. Um, so the fact that it's complicated and the fact that people have been inclined to put up with it means that for a long time, I don't think anyone really wanted to tackle it. And what's changed, I think, in, in the last couple of years is uh, this real uh, kind of this real attitude that we want to actually do something about this now. Let's stop um, accepting what the situation is and let's really tackle it. 
I guess that links on nicely to the next question I was going to ask you, which is, you know, you and I are both employees of the University of Cambridge. We're having this conversation in Cambridge today. So where does Cambridge fit into this? What is Cambridge trying to do to address questions of research culture? Yeah, so Cambridge is no different to any other institution with a large population of researchers. We have problems too. And I think what is really good at Cambridge is that we're going to tackle them head on. So there have been a couple of um, studies and surveys uh, that have happened over the last couple of years at Cambridge that have given us a good um, baseline of evidence of where our problems are. So, for example, there was a full staff survey uh, in 2018, which gave some really interesting data. And also we surveyed our postdoc alumni last year. So we know where the problems are. Some of them are specific to Cambridge, but actually most of them are those big systemic challenges that you'd find in any research university across the world. So we, having got this data and uh, looking across the university and kind of seeing um, what were we doing already to support research culture, we started to pull together some of the kind of ongoing streams of work that, that feed into this. So um, for example, uh, Athena Swan looking at um, gender inequality, the race equality charter, the work that's going on with open research. And we put together a, an institutional action plan for research culture. So this is a big um, ambitious plan. It's great because it's got really strong support from very senior levels of the university. There's a real commitment to wanting to tackle research culture at Cambridge and to really work with this plan. The plan is structured around six high level ambitions or themes, and they cover areas like um, maintaining an excellent research environment, but also one that's open and collaborative and, and supports people in doing their best work. Um, recognition and reward, um, supportive and inclusive research environments, um, careers and professional development, and then probably um, most importantly, working with our colleagues across the sector. So recognising that this is not something that Cambridge can do alone, but working with our colleagues to really try and tackle some of the bigger pictures. And if uh, anyone listening to this is interested in reading the um, Research Culture Institutional Action Plan, they can find it on the Postdoc Academy website, which is mm -hmm. www.postdocacademy.cam.ac.uk. And there's a tab on research culture, and it's definitely worth having a good look at. Um, I guess my question at this point would be, okay, so this is like a hot topic in the sector. Cambridge has taken some time to review its own practices and policies and put together an action plan. But from the point of view of uh, early career researcher who's listening to this podcast, why should they care? What's in it for them to get involved in these conversations about research culture? Yeah, so um, I think that most PhDs and postdocs in Cambridge will be experiencing or seeing some of these negative aspects of research culture on a daily basis. I, I don't think um, we pretend that um, that's not the case. And I think actually when you're at that very early stage of your career, when you're not quite established yet, um, there's still a lot of, of uh, competition and ambition. I think sometimes those aspects can almost feel worse for that, for that um, group of researchers. And so I think looking around and thinking, what can I do to help improve this for myself, also for my colleagues at the same level is something that I can't imagine many PhDs or postdocs wouldn't want to get involved with. I think um, 
what's very interesting is that because of the transient nature of your time as a researcher um, in the early stages of your career, so if you're in an institution for a PhD or for a postdoc for a couple of years, there can sometimes be this feeling that people don't want to invest in the in the long-term improvement of the culture around them because they don't necessarily see themselves as, as staying in that institution for a long time. But I think this is another one of those reasons which has perhaps stalled the progress a little over years and years is that um, what people haven't really got invested in is trying to change the culture around them immediately to help the people who come after them also understanding that when they go on to their next institution that someone will have done that work to help improve things for them it is a it's a big systemic problem and everybody has to has to contribute so <clears throat> I think that I'd expect early career researchers to be experiencing those negative aspects but I can also see why sometimes they they don't feel invested in supporting our change in that area but I would really like to see more researchers get involved and there are lots of ways that that people can really help I mean looking through the action plan and just having a think about your own behaviors uh, how do you interact with your colleagues how do you conduct your research um, but there are also ways to get more strongly involved, um, you know, trying to drive action in your department, maybe joining a relevant committee. And I think also responding to surveys as well. When we come out and we ask researchers what the what the environment's like, it's really important that you you tell us and you give us your feedback on, on what that environment is like for you. Absolutely. I think um, we all understand that there are a lot of surveys in higher education because they come from the funders and the professional bodies and from the central university and from the department and from the colleges but particularly with research culture like we it, like you said earlier on we we really are building the evidence base at the moment you know it's quite recent that we've been gathering some of this data and and certainly when we think about professional development about researcher development that's that's also an area where we're still learning about you know for example different needs across different kind of uh you know personal backgrounds ethnic groups um, disabled researchers all the rest of it it's even after all this time we're still learning new new priorities as it were basically and how different groups of researchers experience the environment differently i've made a very unsubtle link to talking about researcher development there this is an rd podcast and um, from your point of view what do you think the role is of professional development, training, researcher development, whatever language we want to give it. What, what's the role of that in um, driving positive changes in the research culture? How does it fit in the bigger picture? Yeah, so for me, professional development is absolutely critical because what we're trying to do is move to a situation where we really think about not just about what research we produce, but about how we produce that research. And when we're talking about how we produce research, I'm talking about supporting people to be open and collaborative, to um, provide good management to the people who work for them, to provide good leadership within the sector. Um, and uh, all of this necessitates a slightly different way of thinking about, perhaps about the way that you're conducting your research as we start to take um, into account the how research is being done we need to make sure that we support people to develop those skills so that they feel comfortable in in thinking about how they're doing the research so for me that's why um, professional development is a really critical part of what we're trying to move forward 
Yeah, I think that, you know, not just what, but how is actually the, the kind of the essence of the way we try to approach researcher development, not just at Cambridge, but, you know, colleagues across the sector as well. It's, well, I think one of the things that's really crucial is that we can give people uh, tips, you know, this is a quicker way to do this, this is a more efficient way to do this, this is a good strategy for approaching journals or for thinking about, you know, opening your networks, but actually it's that also really crucial step of um, stepping outside of the day-to-day, -day, giving yourself a moment to pause and reflect on how you're experiencing it, what you see around you, how those things might be influencing getting the job done and how, and your sense of what it's possible to do is a really important part, that, that reflexivity, basically. The time to consider what you're experiencing is a really crucial part of researcher development. And I think it gets so often overlooked when we, we let the conversation be too much about skills training and employability, as if those things happen in a vacuum and that, it, or that there's a very neat kind of, you know, input um, throughput output kind of equation. If I learn this skill, I can write it on a CV, therefore I'll get a job. And of course, we just, the world is just not that simple. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting reflection. And I think um, it, it, thinking about the, the way people um, perceive what researcher development actually is, is a really big part of what we're trying to, to drive with this work. So... <clears throat> Ambition five in our six ambitions is um, the one which is all about professional development. And I have a, a real um, desire, a vision that we move towards um, a situation where researcher development is not seen as this, uh, or professional development is not seen as this add-on that you do when you feel like you have time, that professional development is as much a part of your job description or your responsibilities as it is any other part of your role. And I think that again comes back to why <clears throat> it's very important in terms of research culture, because at the moment our focus is so much on um, publications and hard outputs as a way of assessing people it's no wonder that people don't want to make time for activities that are not seen to directly contribute towards those hard outputs, unless, for example, it's the, I'll give you this skill and that skill will allow you to produce that paper quicker. So it, it, that really feeds into that ambition of wanting to really educate people about a different way of doing research and development. Yeah, I would certainly say from my point of view, when we talk about researcher development, it's been very interesting to see the way the conversations have shaped up in the last few years, particularly following the researcher development concordat, which was published in a new edition in 2019, uh, to see the way that the conversations around how much time we ought to spend on, on professional development and training have shifted a little. So it did in 2019 feel to me like a really positive step forward that the Concordat and therefore universities like Cambridge that have signed up to implement the Concordat have said that you we should protect 10 days per year professional development time, which is to say a PhD student or a postdoc that wants to do things that will um, enhance their capabilities, give them more skills, give them perhaps even something more you know, directly focused on employability. They might have identified a gap that they want to address because they know they'll need it on the job market. But anything which is about their personal growth and development in the role that they're doing, in the in the degree that they're doing, that 10 days for that seemed like a big win because that was actually a step on from what we had before. But of course, now with the pandemic 
and the switch to online and the way that um, we've moved from these, you know, half day, whole day, face-to-face -face workshops to more flexible kinds of researcher development, the sort of the use of the asynchronous self-paced learning alongside bite-sized online kind of sessions. I feel like 10 days is maybe not even the right kind of category. What we want to be thinking about is little and often, like what have you done this week that actually has contributed to your learning and to your personal development? Now that, that isn't always going to be coming to a workshop. That might be an interesting article you read or a conversation you had with someone that you hadn't spoken to before, or you did 10 minutes free writing, like just as it were, kind of mindfully thinking about like something that had just happened. And it could be learning a new technique, like very focused on the research, but things which every week, every month, every, every year through your PhD and your postdoc are helping you feel that sense of growth is I think the, that's the kind of research culture that I envisage for research and development. That's where I'd like us to get to. Yeah, and I'm absolutely in agreement with that. So it's interesting that you you mentioned the the 10 days training um, which the Concordat outlined. And I think that was a big win because um, however you wish to interpret that, what that was saying was research and development was an integral part of any drive for change that we were trying to achieve. And, and at the time when the Concordat was published, that was really a headline statement. It was the bit that everybody focused on. And I think it's great that it put into people's minds professional development is something that I should be taking very seriously and is important to what we're trying to achieve here. Of course, the <clears throat> by kind of capturing it in a in a 10-day format, in a numerical format, I think that does slightly misrepresent the attitude that we're trying to drive at Cambridge, which is that professional development is a is a continuous process. And as you say, it's it's a little and often, it's something you could be doing at any time, um, any day, and not necessarily through attending a training course. And, and at Cambridge, we have decided to go down a slightly different path to some of our um, fellow institutions in the UK in, um, in not really focusing on the 10 days allowance as such, but to start a more educational approach about what actually professional development means and what it can mean at different stages of your career and how you might be doing that in ways that are not simply um, sitting on a training course. Although there are also times when being part of an online training course or an in-person training course is the right way to do the professional development. Um, so I think we have, a, we have a big cultural change piece just in professional development on its own, I think, um, which I think is gonna take it's going to take a, a while, but I think we are, um, you know, starting with the premise that people are now starting to see it as more of an integral part. That's a good baseline. I'd quite like it to be written into job descriptions and role profiles um, as, as part of the, the standard um, responsibilities that people would be expected to, to consider, but that's probably a long way off for the moment. Though possibly, but it is also worth noting that the Concordat um, was also signed by the funders, you know, UKRI and the Wellcome Trust, not least, uh, who they, they've said that they share this commitment to um, protecting time for professional development, which I see as a, a kind of acknowledgement from them that a PhD, a postdoc, a research position is 
still a kind of a, a development, a learning um, traineeship, apprenticeship, you know, all this, we hear all this language all the time. In fact, some countries, you know, even postdocs are still very much badged as kind of trainee positions. But the idea that that, that, that learning is, is integral, like that, that continual growth, that you're not just there as a functionary to complete a series of tasks that you should expect over those three, four years to be developing new knowledge, acquiring new skills, having new opportunities to, to demonstrate that and to broaden your networks and try new things. And I think it is really important that it's not just universities and managers and supervisors of researchers, but also the funders, you know, essentially where the buck stops, they've signed up to this too. And they're part of these conversations now about, well, how do we change terms and conditions of grants to make this clearer? How do we show our support for people participating in formal training and development? And you're right that, you know, questions about job profiles might come well, that won't be sorted by next Tuesday, but I but I think there's an understanding that that kind of thing is all up for negotiation right now. Yeah, I think um, the funders are really powerful in helping us to to shape the kind of change that we want to see because um, they hold the purse strings, and they have definitely made a very strong commitment that as they start to assess people for research funding in the future, they will start to look at their um, leadership and management capabilities, those skills that go again back to the how they're doing the research rather than just what they're doing in terms of research. Um, I, I think an interesting point I also want to make at, at this stage is that at the moment we're talking very much about seeing the postdoc and um, as the, the kind of training part of the career and the importance of professional development at the PhD and postdoc level. But it's also part of our ambition at Cambridge to make sure that people carry that right through. <clears throat> and I think that traditionally, um, the people at the earlier stages of their career were probably more open to the idea of professional development, whether or not they felt they had time that they could allocate to professional development is another thing. But we have to see professional development as something that everybody continues to do all the way through their career regardless of whether they feel they are now established and i think um again it comes back to this people are probably doing an awful lot more professional development than they realize in their day-to-day -day experiences every time you take on a a new responsibility or agree to sit on a new committee or maybe you agree to sit on an interview panel or, or there are all sorts of things that people are doing and I suppose it's about helping people to understand that that is professional development but also about um, understanding when they need to look for something a little bit new so if for example um, they are asked to sit on an interview panel for the 15th time that is no longer really development for them that's more business as usual but for a postdoc being asked to do that for the first time, that would be a huge developmental opportunity. And so what actually constitutes a developmental opportunity is very different depending on where you are in your career, who you are as an individual, and what you're looking to do in the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it might just be worth mentioning that quite a widely used model for talking about professional development is the 70-20-10 model. So colleagues in personal professional development in the HR division use this um, when even with, you know, the, the most senior leadership programs they do. The 10% is formal training. The 20% is what they call social learning. So it might be, you know, through networks, through um, conversations, through um, things you pick up 
being alongside someone doing something different and watching and talking to them about what they're doing. But then the bulk of it, the 70% is learning through doing. So I think that that balance that you just described between what is stretching and developing you and what is business as usual is really, really helpful to have in mind. I guess if I were going to play devil's advocate, my slight anxiety in the context of early career researchers who we know do experience high levels of stress, um, a lot of, you know, inner critic, imposter kind of feelings, and often feel that their work-life balance is suffering, for example. Um, I, I wonder whether broadening our sense of the kind of skills that they might want to be developing risks slipping into a conversation where they it appears that they have to just be excellent at everything and it feels yeah. like what they're being told is you need to do more folks that that is a really interesting um really interesting concern and and in the netherlands where they were a little bit further ahead with this um agenda it's worth um if you're interested in uh, reading a little bit more about this, the position paper, uh, Room for Everyone's Talent, um, which set out in the Netherlands how they were going to expand the criteria by which they're assessing people. Um, they started to talk about, and I love this expression, the five-legged sheep. Um, and what they mean by that is that by starting to ask for all of these additional criteria to be recognised, you're starting to um, present this idea that there's a there's no such thing as somebody who can who can tick all of the boxes, and I think by broadening out what we reward, it's not our intention to pile more pressure on people. It's a not great example, really, of, of that systemic nature of this challenge. That um, you know we want to be able to get to a system where we recognise many more. Um, attributes but we are currently still in a system where we're focused on a very narrow range of metrics and and the kind of leap from the current system to the future system is very challenging while people are going through that transition phase and I think there is a danger at the moment that a lot of people in the academic career structure you know if you're going for funding and people suddenly start to talk about well now we need to check that you're a decent leader and a decent manager and people are thinking oh my goodness on top of having you know excellent publications and also you know um brilliant ideas and i now have to do all of this I, I can see how that's it's probably going to be quite challenging for a few years while we try and bed in this idea that we're recognizing a broader range of skills but the kind of the utopia the future is we get to a point where people can really play to the strengths that they they want to use so we all know that there are many, many different skills and tasks that go into producing an excellent piece of research. And at the moment, there are things that happen that aren't really recognized within the career structure. So if you think about the people who are perhaps helping to project manage the research, or maybe someone who develops a brilliant software tool that allows some research to happen, um, or even the, the staff in the research office who help to, to keep the, the financial um, aspects of the grant on track, there are all sorts of people who are contributing to the research endeavor in a way that they are um, skilled to do and enjoy doing. And it's about trying to broaden out our perceptions so that people can feel comfortable that if they are really great at an aspect that isn't necessarily publishing the papers, they can still find a place in the academic system where they feel valued and where they feel like they can have a, a decent career. 
I think from a career perspective as well, what's really interesting just to note, which I think is is not well understood um, actually, that uh, the the research suggests that um, for people who've done um, at least one postdoctoral contract um, in the UK, the um, the largest destination that people go into after research roles in academia and teaching roles in academia is professional roles in academia. You know, sometimes there's a misconception, I think, that um, it, it's either kind of like the traditional academic track or you have to go off and forge your way in, um, in the big, bad, scary world, like whether that's hands-on research in the commercial sector or working for government or, you know, consultancy or whatever that might be. But actually the data suggests that roles like yours, roles like mine, roles in research support facilitation, um, these are the ones that actually more and more people are going into um, once they've got, you know, some professional research experience under their belt. And I think that is little understood, actually. The data is not well known. I find that really fascinating. And I think it really ties into what you're saying about how you, we can broaden our sense of like, what are the skills that actually are required collectively to produce good quality research and therefore, you know, is, is staying on to be a PI the only um, end destination? Can you stay connected to the world of research and to academia without having to pursue that kind of that single route one kind of path? And I, I would say the evidence is strongly indicative of that you can do other things. I, I'd say, yes, that there's definitely um, the multiple pathways that people can take. I think the challenge that we really face is, is getting people to, to see those pathways as valid, interesting, and by definition successful, because there's still such a focus on the, the holy grail of becoming a group leader, uh, becoming a PI, and having that long-term academic career. And it would be really great to be able to move to a space where that wasn't the only measure of success that people felt comfortable in saying do you know what i think i might go and work in this um, research support role but that's equally awesome because it's all contributing to the generation of knowledge and the drive forward of the research agenda in my institution in the country um, and i think we have quite a long way to go before we can really move away from that Kind of single def definition of success in academic careers. It's really interesting what you say there about getting past this idea that maybe the only true success is becoming a PI, becoming a, a group leader and academic um, in the higher education sector. I suppose my provocative question would be, um, do you think that's actually the only way we're going to address the fact that there are far more early career researchers than there are permanent jobs to go on to, is that we actually persuade them that they want to go on to different things? I think that's the way we have to tackle that problem. So uh, when you do any kind of discussion or um, research around the problems in research culture, the issue of you know, the hyper-competitive structure, the fact that there aren't enough permanent jobs for everyone who wants one comes up every time. And, and there just isn't a solution to that because, well, I, mean, I suppose a solution would be to drastically cut the number of postdoctoral positions, but that would have um, a number of very difficult consequences. So really, I think we do want to move to this situation where we have uh, people see um, multiple different career pathways as really genuine options. So it's not a single straight line 
from PhD to your permanent academic position where your absolute focus is getting as many publications or as much output as you can under your belt in order to get there. But instead, we have this system where <clears throat> the end goal is actually looking at so many more aspects than just your research output, which would really free up people to move between sectors in a way that wouldn't be seen as negative. So at the moment, I think if you, if you take time away from academia, unless you very carefully manage that opportunity, so in essence, do something which is not that um, different from what you were doing in academia, that's seen as taking away from your um, pursuit of that end goal. And then what you find is you create a system where everybody who gets to that end goal has had a very um, similar experience and has therefore not had the opportunity to, to experience or think about what life might be like if they deviated from that path. But if you um, start to broaden out what those endpoints look like, people could flow between different sectors and bring different perspectives back in from other sectors. That would be seen as a benefit rather than a drawback. And so gradually you start to, to break down the barriers between these different pathways so that it's not seen as a, I will do career A, and if that doesn't work out, I will do career B. Because in reality, for those of us who work outside of the academic career path structure, that's quite a common way that people approach their careers to, to move freely between sectors, to develop themselves in the ways that play to their strengths and, and are not prescribed by a very narrow set of um, goals that you're trying to reach. So I think it could be a solution, but it will be a long, a long time before we, we really see the effects of that. But that, you know, that doesn't matter. I think the important thing is that we've started on this journey to a better research culture and um, everything we do now will help to build and something more positive. So I'm very optimistic about the future and I, and I hope that um, our researchers, as they start to engage with what we're doing and look at the plan and have a think about how they can contribute, that they're also optimistic. That is going to be then my final question for you. What uh, you mentioned this at, at the beginning and you said there about looking at the plan. Do you want to just take this opportunity to remind um, listeners what they could do if they want to learn more about the research culture work at Cambridge and or get involved? Yes. So um, I would say in the first instance, just stop and have a look around you, see what the culture's like in your group, in your department, and think about what you as an individual could do to really improve that. How could you really bring your colleagues together, support each other, um, be collaborative and, and really uh, think about ways to make the environment a happier place. Um, I would recommend reading a little bit more about some of the uh, actions that Cambridge are undertaking and, and work that's going on across the sector, um, which might help you think about other activities and, and agendas that you might particularly want to pursue within your um, local research space. And then if you're really interested in helping to drive this work forward, then um, we'd love to hear from uh, PhDs and postdocs who would like to contribute to lots of the different actions that we're developing. There's, there's, within the action plan, there are all sorts of things we're addressing. There are small pilot projects where we introduce a new training course on something very specific right through to 
um, opportunities to completely restructure the research and promotions process at Cambridge. And you'll see lots of calls go out from us at the centre for people to get involved. And we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you'd like to get involved and there isn't anything specific we're talking about at the moment, then um, head to the Postdoc Academy's web pages um, and look on the research culture pages and you'll be able to get in touch with us and we'd love to have you involved. And just to uh, reiterate, then you can find the Research Culture Institutional Action Plan on the Postdoc Academy website. It's sitting there for convenience. It's not because it only relates to postdocs. Um, so it's uh, a good place to look for um, PhD students as well. And of course, the other way that you can get involved in supporting um, all of these activities at Cambridge is by participating through your MCR committee, through the student union, um, through staff student committees in your faculty or department. Um, and if you're a postdoc, then thinking about the um, committee chairs network and the PDOC society. So Liz, that was fantastic. Thank you very much for talking us through Cambridge's approach to research culture. And we'll definitely have to get you back to update us on how things are going. Thank you. I'd be really happy to come back and hopefully in a year or two, we can talk about some really positive change that's happened. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you found that RD audio recording useful. If you would like to look at past recordings, you can find these on our website, www.rdp.cam.ac.uk forward slash RD audio, or you can find them on whichever platform you choose to get your podcasts from. I mentioned at the beginning, we'd be really glad to hear from you if you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the sessions we've already done. Please consider subscribing. And if you have a couple of minutes to spare, we'd be really grateful if you would leave a rating on your podcast platform. Thanks again. Bye.